Anxiety is through the roof. It is one day till elections. Oh my God. Don't look at Twitter. Everything is terrible. I hate it here. How are you, Monica? Oh my God. I don't even know what to say or how I feel right now. I really just want people to listen to this episode. Uh, Stephanie goes in so hard on how critical it is for people to vote, particularly in this local election in Chicago. Um, The amount of anti-fair tax ads I've encountered on the radio and online is so freaking wild. And billionaires are spending so much money right now trying to oppose this. It's really infuriating. Uh, So I just wanted to shout out Grassroots Collaborative, who's been doing a ton of work to educate folks on this amendment. Yeah. So I don't know what's what's been going on with you outside of elections. I, you know, I am hanging in there trying to focus on what I can control. Um, we've been, you know, now we're in the budget fight and there's a lot going on and there's a lot, uh, there's a lot at stake. And last time we released an episode, Lori had just released her budget. And so now we've got a firmer sense of, of where things stand and what the numbers are. And yeah, I mean, she's trying to increase CPD's percentage of the corporate fund budget from 37% to 39, which is just outrageous. Uh, and, and there's actually a really great article that I think we should share out on our social media from Injustice Watch that has a really good breakdown of the numbers. Um, It also talks about this really important aspect of her proposal that a lot of people are showing excitement for that I think don't understand um, how little it actually does and how further entrenched it makes us into policing. That being this co-responder program that Lori is putting forward. You know, here in the U.S., at least a quarter of the people who are killed by the police are folks that have a mental health illness. And so there's been a growing conversation about how we need to decriminalize mental health and and take police out of the equation. And that's been pushed by grassroots groups and and communities forever. And um, Lori has tried to present this sort of pilot program that really is just more of the same with with funding for police to show up as a co-responder to mental health crises. And uh, the the thing about this is not only is that just more of the same, but also it's coming at a moment where we have a real suggestion solution on the table, um, this treatment, not trauma ordinance that would just take police out of the equation and it would expand resources for mental health services throughout the city of Chicago, creating this mobile uh, mental health unit and a 211 number and all these things. And anyways, you know, I could talk all day about this, but yeah, what are you, what are you thinking about it all, Monica? The problem with the co-responder model is that it really ignores the fact that real safety comes from decreasing the amount of contact with police, period. And so this sort of quote unquote crisis trained officer, you know, coming out alongside a therapist is still an officer who is deeply embedded in this anti-black, anti-poor system and an officer who is still going to see themselves as the authority in a situation. Um, And it's also true that many people exist Many people who exist at the margins, seeing cops is super triggering and can create an even more intense and like heightened reaction um, uh, upon their arrival. Um, and so, yeah, if Lori continues to just not address the real issue around a lack of mental health care in Chicago, we're not going to get anywhere. And we're unfortunately going to keep seeing people with mental health issues getting killed by police. So I really hope people see through another one of her disastrous ideas and supports Rosanna's ordinance instead, because um, I mean, and if Lori can't even create a logical safety plan during this pandemic, then what makes us think she can keep us safe during a mental health crisis? And actually, you know, of course, all since this has happened, since she's put this forward, of course, you've had the uprisings in Philly take place because of the murder of Walter Wallace, who was, you know, a black man, a young black man who 
who's, uh, was having a mental health crisis and whose mother tried desperately to get the police to back off and to de-escalate the situation and didn't want them there, and they murdered him. Um, and yeah, uh, I mean, this is happening in real time. Um, and there, there was an interview I saw with Mark Lamont Hill talking about how, you know, if you, w- when you're a hammer, you treat everything and you see a nail, all you know how to do is act like a hammer. And that's the police, right? Like all they're mm. going to do is, yep. is be a hammer and we keep expecting different results. So love to Philly, love to Walter Wallace's family. Um, may he rest in power. And I think that, you know, th- this is the hard space that we're in right now of just these horrible tragedies continuing to happen in real time. You know, as we fight, as we organize, we're still losing people and this is life or death. And that's, we ha- and, and I feel grounded in, in, in that. Um, and there's also that, there's the, uh, so much love that we have for each other, right? And we're, we're fighting for our lives, but we're fighting out of love. And I think this episode speaks really well to that, that sort of harsh, um, but human aspect of it all. So, uh, yeah, I love this episode. I don't know, Monica, do you want to share some of your highlights, why people should listen? I mean, I, I love this conversation with Stephanie. She covers so much in such a short amount of time. And something that's sticking with me is how she talked about personal narrative and storytelling, which is super important for, for me and my uh, organizing strategy. Uh, but she talks about it for trans people in a really unique way that I've never heard before. So I hope folks tune in and hear what she has to say on that. I don't want to spoil it. Uh, so yeah, so here it is, our, our conversation with Stephanie Scora. Uh, we're talking about the book Blood, Marriage, Wine, and Glitter by S. Bear Bergman. You're listening to the Lit Review Podcast. We're your hosts, Paige May and Monica Trinidad. I think it's essential for people to learn together in order to be able to understand what we're up against. We must disrupt, we must disobey, we must agitate, we must escalate, we must break, we must create, we must abolish, we must transform. I remember it. She was shocked by my help. In sharing our ideas, we're stronger. Welcome to Chicago. This is home for most. This is the home of the wealthy making cameos. This is the house of the heartless, the home of the cold. Man, my dog is more acknowledgement than homeless folks. Well, Stephanie, we are so excited to have you on the show today. How are you holding up? Uh, you know, I'm I'm holding up okay. I'm holding up okay. You know, I can I can complain, uh, especially because I'm Jewish uh, and because there's a pandemic. But um, you know, I there's I, I could it could be worse. Could be a lot worse for sure. That's so real. Absolutely so real. Um, well, we're we're really excited to talk about this book with you today, and um, just want to quickly before we do that, hear a little bit about yourself. Um, so, if you could share with us. Who, who are you? What do you do uh, in Chicago and why? Oh, God. Okay. Well, uh, my name is Stephanie Scora. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. Uh, I am a writer, educator, organizer, and non-profiteer. Um, I am the associate executive director at Brave Space Alliance, uh, the coolest LGBT center in town. Um, and in my spare time, when I'm not going to bed before 11 p.m. because I am an old woman, uh, I am mean to politicians on the internet, and I write the Girl I Guess Voter Guide, um, which is uh, a great time, a great time. For folks who don't know, can you just tell us briefly a little bit more about the Girl I Guess Voter Guide? 
Yes, it is. Um, it's a leftist slash progressive branded uh, take on voting and coverage of every election in Cook County that's competitive. Um, I go through interesting elections, competitive races, um, and just informational tidbits. Uh, write it all out in a Google Doc format and try to apply my own brand of humor to it. So I'm just, you know, a, a ruthless, faggy asshole to to sitting elected officials and candidates for public office. Public officials take themselves so seriously, and there's this air of, like, universal respectability about politicians. You know, in the news, you never hear people calling the mayor an asshole, even if everybody thinks that she's an asshole. Like, nobody ever calls their alder person a dick, even if they think he's a dick. <laughs> but... When we're having conversations with our when with each other about politicians and about like people who hold public office and are in positions of power, we fucking hate these people a lot of the time, and we talk about them very candidly. But that those opinions don't make it into the public discourse. So I thought that it was important, and my friend Ellen Mayer, when we started writing the guide in 2018, we thought it was important to bring the honest conversation about politics. We wanted to bring that into the public discourse. And part of that is saying, like, look, you know, you are a goofy asshole whose hair hasn't been cut since the 1970s and your politics reflect that, then that's what I'm going to say in the guide. If you don't want those things said about you, then don't be a goofy asshole with a haircut from the 1970s. So that's part of it. Part of it is bringing sort of the irreverence of public discourse about politics into electoral politics itself. And the other part is bringing voter education and public voter education to a segment of the population that has a really strong voice and is very politically engaged, but tends not to be engaged in electoral politics when, in, you know, in some cases one could argue that we should be more engaged in it. Um, you know, Ellen and I wanted to write a guide and I continue to write a guide that would give an easy breakdown to our radical voting skeptic leftist friends um, on how they could participate and how they could vote without them feeling like they had to devote their time and energy to researching something they don't believe in. That's right. And I will say that I have seen this guide everywhere on the internet. Uh, and I've used the guide. So I'm so appreciative and thankful for you uh, and Ellen for putting this together. Um, do you have a sense of the reach of this uh, guide at all? The 2018 general election guide, which is which was only our second guide, had been used by 4% of the registered voters in Cook County. That 4% statistic, though, that's that's telling enough, though, I yeah. think. Yeah. Yeah, 4% two years ago, and the guide's only gotten yeah, bigger exactly. since then. So I'm, what I'm going to do this time is I'm going to watch some of the judicial elections that I gave particular attention to that a lot of other folks haven't been talking about and sort of extrapolate my vote share based off of those. But, you know, if it's 4%, I'll take that mm -hmm. 4%. Worthwhile folks and, and badass leaders have been elected with a hell of a lot less than 4% of the vote. Yeah, I have really appreciated it, not only because I really don't enjoy voting and it it makes me laugh, um, but also because I'm learning, right? The, I remember the first time I voted in Chicago, I didn't know what half of the things on the ballot were. And it actually is a really helpful overview to understand what these positions are and why they matter without lifting anyone up onto a pedestal to say that this person's going to fix everything. And um, mm. yeah, so I really appreciate it. If we're cool, we can start talking about this book. I'm really stoked. I was skimming through it a little bit this morning, and it is really beautiful. And I'm curious to hear first just what led you to read it. My friend Esper Bergman is a wonderful individual who I met many, many years ago, very, very early in my coming out process. I was still in college. I was probably, I had probably been out 
when I met Bear for like six months. They are, you know, a Jewish person and a self-described fag and like an old school transsexual in the style of Kate Bornstein, who I also met right when I was coming out. And just something about the combination of like queerness and Judaism and transness and like no fucks givitude really spoke to baby Steph at that time um, and really informed like the gender that I was going to grow into. And I bought a lot of Bear's books when I was seeing them in various places um, because I love them as a human and also because their writing is really good. And I keep returning to them when I want to refresh my perspective on the previous parts of my journey or to learn something from somebody that I consider one of my living ancestors. Because so for the folks who don't know, um, S. Bear Bergman is a performer, a writer, an educator and uh, an organizer and an activist who is just one of the best people I've ever met. Um, And their books are mostly written in the style of, you know, frank essays that are not intended to be comedic, but are also funny because that's Bear's storytelling style. And so it's it's a book of essays just about stuff that has happened to them in their lives and the the things that they think about it. You know, I was rereading it this morning because I hadn't picked it up in a couple years. And I was just reminded how like poignant and beautiful the writing is and how differently it speaks to me every time. Bear is married and has a kid and like has a family and is doing the whole like family educating, organizing life. And I'm not sure if that life is for me, but I think the comfort and the publicity that they have around their gender and their sexuality are definitely something that speaks to me on a deep level. And the way that they blend that with, you know, a more or less observant Jewish culture and religious observance is something that I try to model. And I just, I super love them and I super love their writing. And I've always found their books relaxing and funny for me. So yeah, I I really, I want more folks to check them out just because I love Bear. And I keep going back to their writing just because it it means a lot to me. Mm -hmm. That's really beautiful. And our understanding of this book, uh, Blood, Marriage, Wine and Glitter is, uh, it's very thematic around uh, the the concept of families. What is a mm-hmm. family, and what what can it be? Um, especially being a trans person in a in a heteronormative family. Um, so, can you tell us more about what the author is exploring in this book? Yeah. So this book, uh, Bear wrote it after uh, them and their partner had um, a child. They had written previous collections of essays before about like their life as a queer and trans Jewish person. And, you know, their career speaking and performing across Canada and the U.S. and other places. They had written to some extent about family, because as a public queer and trans person, we all have to talk about family all the time. Um, But they wanted to write a book specifically exploring their identities and their life and their intersection with their experience of family and how their family is not just them and their partner and their kid and now their other kid, but also all of their lovers and their lovers' friends and their lovers' lovers and like their sixth cousin's uncle's former granddaughter or whatever. The intricate webs of familial connections and interpersonal relationships that queer and trans people weave to keep ourselves stable and going in a world that would rather not see us that way is really the underpinning of the book is just an exploration of the breadth of family and the depth of family as well. I have a follow-up question. I'm still sort of, it's ruminating in my head, but I guess, can you speak to the ways that 
heteronormative family exists and is sort of enforced? And then what what is the some, some of the interventions that are being made through this book? When each of us thinks of a family, the first image that pops into our head because it's been conditioned that way is one heterosexual man, one heterosexual woman, two to 2.5 children, 1.5 pets, you know, a house or an apartment, a picket fence. It's very much this white, middle-class, suburban norm that's been sold to everybody through homophobia and heteronormativity and white supremacy and capitalism and redlining and everything else. You know, literally every system of power and control in the country has combined to feed us this narrative of what a family is supposed to look like. I would assume that for most people that all three of us know, family doesn't look anything like that at all. Um, I don't know if I know a single person who's like cishet and has 2.5 kids and like a pet and a house. And like just the concept of that horrifies me. <laughs> just, ugh. Ugh. That's not a realistic idea of what family is supposed to be. And even just the broader concept that's tacked onto the heteronormative nuclear family, the idea that you always have to have a good relationship with your parents and your direct blood relatives, um, and that, you know, the family that you're born into is the family that you have, and that's it, and that's forever, and etc. You know, familial linkage and ancestor reverence are important concepts in a lot of cultures, but the idea that you can't separate from people in your biological family who may have done significant harm to you is a very heterosexual concept and a very cisgender concept. Um, Because sometimes the people who have had the most access to you throughout your life are the people who have had the most capacity to cause you harm. And sometimes you have to cut ties with those people to, to heal and live your best life and, and, you know, exist as a human. Um, And I, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say that bear is making a specific intervention Um, they're certainly not talking about anything that at the time this book was published, I think it was what, in, in 2017, 2016, when was it? 2013. Oh God, it's a lot older than I thought. Even in 2013, like this, this book was prescient back then in talking about the ways that queer family exists, but I don't think Bear was trying to talk about something new because the idea of queer family and the idea of, you know, a diverse set of familial connections was not a new idea in 2013. I think... What they were trying to do is is portray the more personal side of and and the the myriad complexities that family can have through the lens of their own life instead of just exploring the the depths of like gay people sometimes don't like their parents and in fact in the book they write quite a bit about the complex nature of their relationship with their own biological family um, and you know they write about their grandparents um, and they write about how their parents still use their birth name um, and how that's okay because their parents are allowed to, even though it makes them feel weird Um, and how different people in their life know them from different times in their life. And there's a passage in there about how when them and their partner got married, they thought that they could have an icebreaker activity at the wedding by uh, requiring each person, having a bingo card and it would be name and pronoun bingo and how every person at the wedding could go and find every single other person that uses a specific name pronoun combination for them. And I think, you know, it's it's a it's a great way of portraying. I wouldn't I mean, Bear isn't an old person, so I wouldn't say, you know, queerness and transness while aging. But I would certainly say, you know, it's it's a way of presenting midlife familial queerness and transness and how it looks to have a big, beautiful transsexual family full of all sorts of far flung and immediate connections 
and also have a complex but existing relationship with one's biological family. Um, and really an exploration of what that is meant to bear and projecting that experience and taking their own positivities and their own um, their own strength and their own growth throughout their throughout their life with their family and portraying it to show other queer and trans folks that, you know, you can have this family and this is one way that it can look. I have a follow-up question. I mean, that brings up something for me around uh, the importance of sharing personal narrative as a tool to uh, deconstruct this idea that, like, a certain population is a monolith, right? Like trans people are all the same or queer people are all the same. We all want the same things, right? So I see the the value and importance of sharing personal narrative. What do you feel like Bear's goals were with sharing this personal narrative? You know, especially as an organizer, activist, right? Um, what do you feel was their intentions with uh, sharing personal narrative uh, in this book? Well, you know, I think Bear is a storyteller. And this is this is what they do. Like they describe themselves as a storyteller. They talk extensively about how, as a Jewish person, they're drawn to storytelling. Jews are a storytelling. Like we have a storytelling culture. Um, so much about Jewish culture, especially Jewish culture that's you know divorced from ethno nationalism, is about telling stories about ourselves, stories about our relatives, stories about our culture, stories about our past. You know, every single aspect of Jewish culture is story based. We retell stories as ritual. We engage in storytelling as ritual. We engage in storytelling in particular ways as community connection and to build familiarity amongst each other. Um, And so, you know, this is part of what Bear does as a storyteller and as a performer is they tell their own stories and they tell them, again, to portray their perspective as, you know, a person who was a butch and then was, you know, a transmasculine person and now is like a gender faggy dad. Um, and, you know, they're, they storytell through their, their lens to, to show their possibilities and to share themselves with the world and really as part of the Jewish culture of storytelling to put cultural reverence and identitary reverence and personal reverence onto the importance of their story. Um, And also as trans people, we recognize that one of the best ways to stake a permanent claim to yourself is to be able to tell your story coherently and in as many places as possible. You know, we see so frequently, even in 2020 and frequently, you know, we see when trans people have violence done to us or when trans people are murdered, our stories are often lost. You know, we're often misgendered in the press. We're misgendered by medical documents or in police reports. And, you know, there's this concept called necropolitics, um, which is, uh, for folks who don't know, uh, who might be listening, necropolitics is the idea that the state controls and the state's systems of power control not just how one is able to live, but the manners in which one is able to die and experience death. Um, And trans people experience you know, social death and necropolitical death in particularly unique ways. We're a unique population of people that are dying because we are, by and large, a community of folks who have used our lives to tell a story that we want to say about ourselves that's different than the story other people want to tell about us Um, and different in a fundamental way. And when people are killed and misgendered in the media or deadnamed in the media, often a task that falls to their immediate community 
is the task of retelling their story and reclaiming their narrative and, you know, pushing back against these necropolitical forces that are trying to force a narrative of cisness, a narrative of criminalization, a narrative of freakishness onto trans bodies and saying, no, this person had a name. This was this person's gender. This is what their life was, X, Y, and Z. And I, I always find trans storytelling to be particularly important because the way that we can guarantee the vera- like the, the existence of our narrative and the prominence of our narrative when we die is to tell it ourselves and tell it loudly. And this is why you see so many trans people talking about themselves. This is why you see so many trans people being storytellers and, and you know, making art and doing poetry and, and writing songs about themselves and about their experience is that we all know at any time we could be murdered for being trans. And in order to keep our truths alive after us, in order to stave off a social death or a total death where our story and our and our body is lost, that we have to tell our story in as many ways as we can and put it out there loudly, put it out there proudly and put our, put our mark on it so that it's identifiably and unquestionably our story. And I don't necessarily think Bear is trying to say like, tell your story before you die. But I think part of, part of what Bear's writing means to me is an example that I can really relate to in the long tradition of trans storytelling and in the long tradition of Jewish storytelling and storytelling about oneself and one's own life in a way that marks your identity and your presence and your work as undeniably yours. Is there a question that you want to answer about, uh, I'm thinking of, of like houses, right, in New York City. I'm thinking like the, uh, that larger history. I'm thinking about also the ways that, you know, like black and indigenous folks have not been able to have family, right, in this heteronormative way. Familial structure in the book isn't explored in the same way as, you know, Black and Indigenous cultural imaginings of family or even, like, ballroom imaginings of family or reimaginings of family. It's in the same universe of queer and trans familial happening and familial construction, but it's telling a different part of that story. The common thread in those narratives is rejection by cis-heteronormative society and a construction of an alternative family that rejects all of the bases of biological family. And I think part of the story that Bear is telling is saying, look, you can have that family and you should have that family if you want it and like go and make it as big and gay and slutty and weird as you want. And also these uncomfortable connections that you maintain with your biological family can be part of your larger familial structure. And I think that's the part that's removed from the other kinds of families that we're talking about. Um, and most people in you know, what we think of as more mainstream representations of queer familial structures don't have any connection with anybody that they're blood related to. And their sisters are the people they grew up with on the streets. And their mothers and fathers are their, are their house mothers and fathers, or their community leaders, or their elders from, from their organizing groups. Bear has a very extensive very, very extensive queer family full of those exact same kinds of connections. And also they go visit their grandmother in Florida. And also their parents were at their wedding. And also they have a kid. So my question is also around the structure of the book, right? So this book is essays by Bear, right? Like uh, several essays. Why 
what is your opinion on why they might have chose to do an essay format versus like writing just like writing a memoir, <laughs> you know, like writing a straight shot book? You know, my my sense is very much that they're this is just how they write. You know, they're writing in stories and instead of telling one larger story about their life, they choose to tell a series of smaller stories to convey more like to tell more stories because they're a storyteller. You know, they they don't want to write a memoir because they're writing a memoir just in several volumes of stories about themselves. And also the genre of memoir doesn't really suit people whose lives need so much explanation. Um, you know, genuinely when you th- like generally when you think about memoirs, you know, it's this person was XYZ and this is all the neat shit that they did or this is this one particular interesting interaction or time period in their lives and it's usually not this person has had like six genders and four different names and like has lived 20 different places and has several families of various queer connection and breadth that are now all one family. I mean, that would be the whole book. The whole book would just be explaining the familial structure itself. And so I think just for the stories that they're trying to tell, it's much easier to just say, this is my life. These are my people. This is the story that I'm telling and tell it in snippets rather than try to construct a single coherent narrative out of, you know, a life that in many ways was built to defy traditional narratives of coherence. It's hard to tell a big, complex story in a memoir. Um, some parts have to get sanded down to fit within like page limits and story coherence and like a plot line or whatever. And when you write a book of essays or when you write a series of, of short, like micro essays, like the voter guide, you can tell a larger story about what's going on and not have to commit yourself to one narrative throughout. One of the most important things that I also take away from, you know, from Bear and their writing and the way that their writing has influenced mine is that. As, as marginalized people and as multiply marginalized people, one of the best tools that we have is our own joy. And part of that joy is laughter. And the way that power is in, the way that power and the state and systems of power and control overall keep us oppressed is by denying us joy and by forcing us to take them seriously and see them as not only just the existential threat that they are, but as something that can rob our lives of, of uniqueness and of happiness and of culture. And one of the ways that I believe that we can fight back against systems of power and control broadly is to recognize them and to laugh at their absurdity. The, the thing about voting is that you see it every presidential election. People take it so seriously, so seriously. Like everybody has a giant stick up their ass about voting and you can't you aren't allowed to make fun of it at all. You're either it, it seems like everybody's on one of two, like uh, on one side or another about you have to vote, you have to vote. It's the most important thing that you can do. Like it's an essential tool in the toolbox. Go out and vote. You know, don't criticize the candidates even if you hate them. And also, fuck everybody. The whole system is rigged. Elections don't count. My vote doesn't matter. You know, like you're a sellout. Don't vote. Voting is betraying the movement. And those are those are the two perspectives that you hear. And what I'm really trying to bring is a third perspective, um, you know, to not not to risk being... In the, uh, in the ignominious group of people who bring third perspectives to tried and true binaries. Um, I sort of see it as a yes and for both of those. Like, yeah, you should vote because it's easy and it doesn't take that much time if you have somebody else do the work for you, which is what I do um, to an extent. And sometimes your vote really does fucking matter. Like in the case of, of judicial retention and in the case of the fair tax, your vote really matters. And also, if all you're doing is voting, you're not doing anything. And, you know... 
yes, we're upholding an imperialist, settler, colonialist, white supremacist, transphobic, et cetera, et cetera, system. And not voting doesn't dismantle that system any more than voting does. You know, whether you participate or not, the system's still going to be there tomorrow unless we all rise up today. And you don't gain anything by not participating. And you don't gain anything by participating either, but you stand to lose quite a bit more if your lack of participation leads to it, and not even necessarily leads to as in it's your fault, but leads to as in, you know, you didn't participate and now the system has made a shitty choice for you and you have to live with that shitty choice. I would rather we participate and still struggle than forfeit our participation and have to live with the consequences of somebody else's bad decision anyway. And we're seeing this with Lori Lightfoot right now. Like, a whole ton of us voted for Tony Preckwinkle. And, you know, we, we could have had the school teacher. We could have had the school teacher. So what has been your main takeaway and influence from reading this? Yeah, you know, I think, in, and this is true in a lot of Bear's writings, is the, one of the central takeaways from Blood, Marriage, Wine, and Glitter is it's, it's story after story about joy and resilience and memory and connection and just like love and softness within a familial context and also within a personal context and spread out over stories for many years of their life. And those are all things that we really fucking need right now. You know, because it's not a single narrative, I can't tell one story about it. But as a collection of essays, I think that, you know, this is this is the kind of radical imagining and radical telling of something that's already been imagined and happened of connection and family and interpersonal relation that we need to see and absorb as many perspectives as we can on. Because these are the kind of relationships, these are the kinds of structures that we're going to need to build the world that we all want. And just the way of of being kind to each other and building connections across difference and difficulty and you know generations and space and time are things that Folks are both really good at and really fucking bad at right now. You know, we're, we're really good at shitting on each other when disagreement happens. And I think there hasn't been enough time spent on intentional relationship building and intentional coalition building outside of everybody's individual ideological bubble, an individual immediate bubble. And for me, every story about queer family and every story about trans family is a story of coalition building, just coalition building with much more personal stakes. You know, time and time and time again in this book and in their other writings, Bear tells stories that don't even have to imagine that kind of of beautiful, radical, like, acts of community love because they're already told about in the book. They're already spoken about. They're they're pre-existing. They're just there. And I think we all have a lot to learn from that. And even if it's stuff that we already knew, we have a lot to reabsorb from it. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie, for taking time to talk with us about this book. Again, it's called Blood, Marriage, Wine, and Glitter by uh, Bear Bergman. And uh, I'm really stoked to share this book with people that I know in my life, especially Jewish trans people in my life that I think would appreciate this book. And also just like everybody should read this book, um, including myself. As we reach the end of our episode, I also did want to say, because this episode is going to be coming out, I believe, the night before Election Day, I do want to ask uh, if if someone is listening right now um, that is still on the fence about going out to vote, what would you say to them to convince them to go out tomorrow to uh, vote and then organize the following day? <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> the night before Election Day... 
<laughs> the night before election day, it's too late to it's too late to vote early. So buy a hazmat suit um, and like put on put on some gloves and a mask and like go out really early, wait in line and vote. Yes, I know it sucks. Yes, I know there's a whole ton of corruption in Chicago and Cook County. Yes, I know the United States is like a corrupt capitalist, white supremacist, transphobic colonial empire. We know. We get it. We know. On your ballot in Illinois and in Chicago right now, you have the ability to pass a reform to the state's tax bracket that will allow us to take money from millionaires and billionaires and use it to fund schools and and shore up the state's, like, get rid of the state's deficit. It won't solve the problem by itself, but I know all of us are into taxing billionaires and taking money from rich people. So you, you literally have the ability to go out and vote to do that. And if that's not enough, if like, you know, making a reform to a tax code isn't sexy enough, there are truly terrible people in Cook County who have immense power by virtue of being judges. And we have the ability, we have the privilege of being able to choose them and tell them whether or not they keep their jobs. Every six years, judges are up for retention. Every year, judges are up for retention, but it's, it cycles. Every judge has a six-year retention term. And there are some fucked up people on the ballot. There's Tuman, who is just, who is so bad that the Cook County Democratic Party is actively campaigning against him. I've seen Jan Schakowsky's face in more ads against Tuman's retention than I have in ads for her own campaign. He was keeping young people, like he turned JTDC, like he, he was just detaining young people well beyond their what they had been sentenced to under COVID. There are people on the ballot right now for judicial retention who lock up children, who are horrible to sexual assault survivors, who are racists, who are white supremacists, who ran campaign, who were campaign managers against Harold Washington in the 80s. And we literally have the ability to make them lose their job. It's not hard. Judicial retention requires 60% of the vote for those judges to keep their job. If these judges get 59% of the vote, they lose their job. If they get 59.9% of the vote, they lose their job. We have the ability to make fundamental changes to the carceral system in Cook County just by voting out horrible judges. And that is an opportunity that we as abolitionists and we as radicals cannot pass up. The things we're literally out in the streets protesting to do every single day, we have the ability to do that with a vote. And to not vote in that, like, if you go and you only vote for judges, also please vote for the fair tax, because if you don't vote for it, it might be construed as a vote against it, because constitutional amendments are weird. But even if you only go out and vote for judges, you are making a difference that we are trying to make every day on the streets. Voting against racist judges, voting against asshole judges in general, is an act of abolition. And that's something we all believe in. And one of the tools we have in our toolbox is telling these judges that they don't get to be judges anymore by voting. And we all have to go out and do that. It is our job as abolitionists to get rid of these judges and to change the system any way we can until we can tear it down completely. Hmm. That's right. Absolutely. You hear that, everybody? So if you don't go out and vote, uh, I believe, on Tuesday, November 3rd, then you are going to be hearing from Stephanie from Paige and from Monica. <laughs> We're coming for you. Um, thank you so much again, Stephanie, for, for being on the show and for talking with us. Um, can you close us out, bringing it back to the, uh, to the theme of joy? And uh, <laughs> because sometimes voting is the opposite of joy. Um, can, you, can you close us out with a favorite passage um, from this book? Yes. Uh, so um, this is a passage where from a, a chapter called uh, Mahatunim, 
um, which is a Yiddish word that's explored in the passage. Um, the context is Bear is talking about um, their grandma aging and experiencing the effects of aging and, and going through some signs of dementia and Bear uh, visiting them and hearing about their health in Florida um, and how they were dealing with their own reactions to their grandma's health and the changes in her well-being by wanting to reach out to one of their friends. Uh, and they're talking to their friend, Ivan, who was having a similar experience. Um, and Ivan was talking about their grandparents. So when her little grand Florence passed two summers ago, Ivan talked and told stories about her for months. I got three different phone calls that summer that started out to, uh, to be about business and ended up to be about her gran. My husband and I had just gotten married and he was pregnant with our son. Ivan and I talked about a lot, of, a lot about our families all summer long. And in the late fall, too, when we, went down to, uh, when we went on tour down the West Coast and each night the onstage patter deepened into a cyclical groove of celebration, her little grand just passed and my son soon to come. We made audiences cry from San Francisco to Victoria, British Columbia, telling all kinds of family stories, butch and femme and trans and queer, blood and marriage and not marriage at all. And I remembered that it was Ivan's story about her aunt, Kathy, girlfriend of one of her many uncles and no actual legal relation in any way at all, that made me explain during one long car ride about machatunim. It's a Yiddish word sometimes translated as co-in-laws, as in your kid's spouse's parents. And it's been used my whole childhood to indicate all those people to whom one is not actually related directly, but who are definitely family, like it or not. Your brother's wife's sister, your former stepmother no longer married to your dad, but still beloved by you and her new husband. Your favorite cousin's lovers, all three of them. Your sister's wife's brace of great aunties. The child you helped parent for the five years you were lovers with her dad. Your uncle's ex-girlfriend from two decades ago. Mechatunim, all of them. It helps to have a word for it, I find. Especially when someone asks if you're family and you're not sure if, they're, if, if you are or not in their definition of the word, which might be a little more conservative than yours. You say, well, he's mechatunim. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Lit Review, a podcast where we interview people we love and respect about books to help grow our movement. We are your co-hosts, Monica Trinidad and Paige May, two Chicago-based abolitionist organizers. We'll be back next week with another episode next Sunday, same time, same place. Want to learn about a specific book? Email us your suggestions at thelitreviewchicago at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. And if you like this episode, give it a shout out on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is at LitReviewShy. Financial support for the production of this podcast is thanks to our amazing Patreon subscribers. Learn more about becoming a patron at patreon.com slash thelitreview. Keep reading.